If you have your copy of God's Word, if you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, we'll be reading from this morning, here in just a moment, Romans chapter 10. Now, last week we finished up chapter 9 by looking at verses 24 through 33, and we made the ex exclamation that the Bible does, even us. So even we, even us, even we can be saved. We also saw the great struggle that the Jews were having due to the fact that it appeared the Gentiles were engrafted into God's plan without having to follow the law ever, without going through any of the rituals and routines. They were never part of that. And they couldn't quite understand how someone outside of the Abrahamic covenant could be included in God's plan of salvation. And they, they want to ask the question, how can they be made righteous in God and we not be? When we follow the law, when we've done everything that, that's been required of us, are you saying, Paul, that that the Jew is excluded from God's plan now, but the Gentile is, is included. And so Paul would quote to them from the Old Testament. He'd go back to their prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. He, he, read, he quoted from both of those, proving to them that Jesus was the stumbling stone as whom the prophets were speaking of. And he was the problem they were having. He was a rock of offense to them. And so I told you last time that those last four verses of chapter 9 really went with the first four verses of chapter 10. So to keep this in context, I want us to start in Romans chapter 9 and look at verses 30 through 33, and then we will get into Romans chapter 10 and read those first four verses of that chapter. So starting in Romans chapter 9 with verse 30, the Bible says, What shall we say then? that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and, a, and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Uh, it, it continues there in Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Help us now as we try to proclaim your word. May it go out and do a mighty work in our hearts today. And we'll give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after Paul had quoted those Old Testament passages of Scripture there, uh, which revealed how Christ had become the stumbling stone to the Jews, he was the reason that they were not part of this righteousness now of God. But the Gentiles were. The Gentiles were readily accepting faith in Christ and believing in him and becoming saved. Now, this text, as it opened up here in chapter 10, says brethren. So Paul is addressing those that are saved back in Rome. That's who this letter is written to, the church in Rome, those that are saved. And so the word brethren's addressing them. And so he's saying, listen, brethren, it's my heart's desire. And that's what he said there. 
My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So these people in the church, these saved people, would be asking questions that Paul is answering. Well, what about our you know fellow brothers and our Jews? What about the the other Jews that are unbelieving? Are they excluded now from God? And so Paul's answering all these questions, and he does address them as brethren. And so he starts out there with that phrase. There is a gnat in here that I am going to murder when I find him. <laughs> that phrase, my heart's desire. Now that phrase, heart's desire, is only used three times in all of the Bible. It's used twice in the book of Psalms, and it's used once right here in Romans chapter 10. And what we find here is this: what this phrase really means, your heart's desire, is really, if you think about it, it's, it's, uh, it encompasses your soul, your mind, your body, your spirit, everything that you have, everything you possess, it's what you're longing for. It's the thing, it's the object of your desires, it's the thing that's going to satisfy you, uh, either uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. That's going to be the thing that satisfies you. It's your heart's desire. Now, we desire a lot of things in this life, but really, we may say it's my heart's desire to have this or to have that, but really, you could do without that. It's not something that you sit around and, and dwell on and think about and can't live without. Here, Paul, this heart's desire he's talking about is something that it's consuming him. It consumes his every thought, his every day. It's going through the back of his mind of its heart's desire. And he's praying every day that these Jews, Israel, would be saved. Now, there are some things in your life that are your heart's desire that you simply can't live without. Uh, it's been, what, 39 years ago when I first saw the woman who would be my wife as she walked in the church doors. And as soon as I saw her, I knew. My heart just, it melted. I knew my heart's desire was she was going to be my wife forever. And so it consumed my every thought and still does. I still have that same desire. And so my entire life was devoted to making sure this woman would become my wife, and she did. And I thank the Lord for that. The Lord orchestrated all that. He brought it all together. And I can honestly say that was my heart's desire. Now, when our children, before they were saved, your heart's desire is that they would be saved. And you take them to church. You, you set them under good preaching and teaching. You, you read them from the Bible. You make sure they're trained up the way that a child needs to be trained up. And your heart's desire is they get saved. And when they finally do... Uh, ours have all been saved now. All three of them have received Christ as their Savior. And that that's just, it completes you. It gives you this satisfaction, this feeling that everything is good now. You know, if everything else fails in this world, if the whole world falls apart, if the world burns down today, knowing your family is saved, they, they, they know Christ, then you feel like everything will be okay. And so... You're, when your heart desires something, you'll do whatever it takes to make it come about. And that's what drove Paul in the gospel ministry. Although the Lord appointed him as the preacher unto the Gentiles, uh, which, you know, was one of those things Paul, Paul suffered with that. It was one of those things that he had a difficult time with because he had wanted to reach the Jew first. And that's, that was his pattern to the Jew and to the Greek, to the Jew and the Gentile alike. And so Paul, he mentions it numerous times. In his writings, for the desire, I got that, Nat, uh, for the, his desire that uh, uh, the, the Jews be saved, his fellow Jew. 
And so he says things like this. In Romans 9, 1 and 3, which we covered already a couple of weeks ago, he said this. He said, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, we preached on that already a few weeks ago, and we saw how those words meant what, what Paul said, that he would wish that even he himself were a curse from Christ. In other words, he would be willing to give up his salvation. He'd be willing to go to hell that his brothers, his, his the fellow Jew, would be saved. He, it was that strong to him. He said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow, not just every now and then. It wasn't just something that he thought of, you know, by chance or, you know, every now and then or a week or so ago or maybe, you know, last month I was thinking it's every day. It never leaves his mind. Now, in his letter to his young son in the faith, Timothy, over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul wrote this. He said, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, Paul was willing to endure any hardship that came to him. We know from reading on his life in the Bible how he would be taken and stoned. He was At one place, he was left for dead. He was stoned, drug outside the city and stoned, and left for dead. And that's where we believe he went into that third heaven, and he saw those things which he was not able to utter. He couldn't tell man about it. And he received that thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. But uh, Paul was willing to go through all that. If you remember, when they would do things like that to Paul, in that instance, when they drug him out there and left him for dead, the Bible says he went back into the city after that. He, he arose and he went back into the city. So he was willing to take whatever it was to suffer any kind of pain, any kind of uh, torture, torment, uh, persecution, whatever it took. Paul says, I'm willing to do that for the elect's sake. Now, the elect, of course, would encompass not only the Jew, but the Gentile like anybody that's saved, that God preordained before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. So that would include us as well, but it would include the Jew. And so Paul says, I'm willing to do, endure all things for the elect's sake, so that they may also obtain salvation. And he, and he includes, he makes sure he says, which is in Christ. And so the desire of every Christian's heart should be that the same as Paul's. Our desire should be that we want to see all the world be saved. And the problem with that is it becomes difficult when we see how the world acts. Uh, we are not God. We don't have God's heart. Uh, we strive to be more like him every day, more like Christ, and strive to uh, be sanctified on a daily basis. But we are flesh, and we still have that old creature we battle with, and that old creature looks out on this world, and we see all the awful things and the way people act and behave, what they say and what they do. And, you know, if you want to be honest, we, we don't like them. We despise a lot of people in this world because of the way they act and the way they are. Now, that's hard for us to overcome and to also have a, a love for them that Christ would have to see that they're saved. I honestly do. Pray that those people that are like that, those wicked people that we see on a daily basis, you see them in the news, uh, you read about them, you, you, you see them in, daily, in your daily walk, you go out to the store and you see certain people that you know are not saved by the way they behave, the, the actions they have, the, the words they speak, and you know they're not saved and you may, you may want to condemn them. 
That's our natural inclination. We condemn those that are not behaving the way we think they ought to. But our heart should go out to them and think, Lord, would you please you know, convict them, convict their heart. And so our heart's desire should be to see that all the world is saved. And we know that God sent his only son Jesus here that the world could be saved. And so the world has the ability to become saved, everyone. No matter how wicked they are, they have the means to be saved by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we ourselves, not only as a Christian, but as a church, as a member of the church, as our church's base theology, our doctrine, uh, what it is that makes us a church, our number one job as a church is to see that people get saved. Uh, we are to fulfill the Great Commission. The assembling of the church body is to come together to be edified, to come together to be taught Scripture, to take that Scripture, to take what we've learned from God's Word out into this wicked world and, and, and preach the gospel, teach the gospel, share the gospel unto every creature. And so, you know, uh, many people think that sharing the gospel is really just the job of the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the missionary, uh, you know, people that, are, that have titles or designated as, as certain things. But however, the Great Commission is given to every believer. It is every Christian's job to share the gospel. And there's many ways of doing this. Uh, our heart's desire should be that we discover a way that, that we're able to share the gospel, whatever it may be. There are so many ways. And I could stand here and you know, and, and rattle them all off. And I know a lot of people like that. They want to hear what the preacher says. Well, what can I do? You know, I'm not going to get behind a pulpit and preach. I'm not going to get behind a Sunday school lecture and teach Bible. And I'm not going to do this and that. I'm not going to become a deacon or a missionary. So what can I do, pastor? And that's what a lot of people want. They want somebody to tell them what to do. Well, let me give you some advice. Any means that you have available to you, first of all, pray about it and ask the Lord to help you, and he will help you. The Lord's not going to deny you the ability to share the gospel. He will make a way for you. What you need to do is to be aware of that when the opportunity comes, that that's God giving you the opportunity, the door to open to share the gospel. And that could be from handing out a gospel tract. It could be taking a gospel tract and leaving it somewhere in a public place. Uh, you could, you know, all that. Uh, a lot of people are not comfortable walking around giving out tracts. I understand that. But there's other things you can do. You can witness to your coworkers. You can just in your daily conversation, maybe to a stranger, maybe you meet somebody out somewhere and the chance comes up that you're just having a conversation. And you may say something just, you know, real quickly like, uh, you know, I go to a porch light Baptist church. Where do you go? You know, or something like that. Uh, or do I know you from church? Did I see you in church somewhere? That, that'll that get the ball rolling. And if they've never been to church, then you're going to know real quick. Or they might say, well, I'm, you know, I don't know. Maybe. But uh, it's just a, any opportunity that you get, you can, you can somehow get in there to be able to share the gospel. And so we take all these opportunities to go out and witness. Uh, you can You can help out in different ministry events. You can go out and... Uh, different events, even world, the world's events. Uh, there was a lot of people going to the UT ball game yesterday. There's an opportunity right there. There's so many people, you know, hundred and something thousand people congregating in Neyland Stadium. 
there's an opportunity there for someone to share the gospel with somebody. And so you can find a way. And like I said, the most important thing is for you to pray about it and ask the Lord to reveal to you and open that door. But you got to be willing to walk through the door and do it. So Paul's heart's desire and our heart's desire should be the same. Paul says that all of Israel, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now don't leave out that little word prayer that Paul threw in there. Not only is his heart's desire, not only does it consume his every thought, not only does he strive to share the gospel, but he prays. His prayer to God is that they'll be saved. How many times do we pray and forget about the lost people? I'm guilty of it. Uh, we get in, in routines of prayer. Uh, we get certain things in our mind we're praying about. Uh, sometimes we pray selfishly. Sometimes we're focusing on someone else, and we forget the lost. Uh, there used to be a lady at, at a church I pastored, and almost every time when we took prayer requests, she said, yes, and don't forget the lost. And so we, we always remember to pray for the lost during our uh, altar prayer time. But we need to remember that. There's people all around us that are lost, they're dying, they're going to hell, and we should be praying to God. It should be our heart's desire and prayer to God. God, would you save them? We don't have to say, God, would you save all Israel? We do pray that he does that, but would you please save my neighbor? Would you please save my coworker? Would you please save my son, my daughter, my, my uncle, my aunt? There's so many people that we know that are lost and it ought to be our prayer to God that they be saved. Verse 2 of our text there in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, you see, not everyone has the authority to speak on this subject as Paul does. Paul has all authority to speak on it because he is a Jew himself. He walked in Judaism all of his life for the first 30-something years. Paul was a staunch um, by the law, by the book Jew, and he walked in that. He had the zeal of anybody that had zeal. It was the Apostle Paul. And so he had the ability to be able to speak on this, and he mentions it several times in the Bible. I'm going to give you some of those times. This is not all of them, but this is some. This is going to be important. You can write these down. Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, we find Paul giving, he's kind of given a defense before the people. He had been arrested. Uh, that was when he went into the temple and they were accusing him of trying to, uh, you know, uh, do things he wasn't supposed to do. And they, they drug him out. And so he gives a defense of him, him own, his own self. And he says in Acts 22 and 3, he said, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, he's in Jerusalem at this time, at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. And listen to what he said and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. You see, Paul speaking from a self-perspective here. He grew up in this. He says, listen, guys, I'm just like you are right now. I used to be just like you. Very, very zealous of God. Now, later in his defense before King Agrippa, he'd been taken to the, to the jail, and they were passing him back and forth, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do with him. Because he hadn't really done anything. And so all these different people want to hear from him. Agrippa being one of them. I believe they were trying to distort money from him for, for one reason. 
But Paul was always willing to share the gospel, even with those that were questioning. And so before Agrippa, in Acts chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, he's defending himself. And he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul's making a case for himself here. He understands the Jewish mindset. He said, I was of the strictest, or the straightest, the most straightest sect. In other words, there was nobody that stood on the law greater than I did. I was the straightest and strictest of the sect of our religion because I was a Pharisee. You're not going to get any higher than that when it comes into the echelon of, of religion. And further on in Paul's letters to the Galatians. Now remember, Galatia was that church he was having some issues with because they had quickly departed from the truth of the gospel and allowed these Judaizers to come in and teach uh, false doctrine. Paul was getting on to him, and, and so he's also had to defend his apostleship, defend his, uh, his gospel he's preaching, the true gospel, because they had been detractors there saying he was preaching a false gospel. And so Paul, in his letter to Galatians, the Galatians 1, chapters, or verses 13 and 14, he says this, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. The Jews' religion is Judaism. That's what that is. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. Here Paul is, he's telling these, these folks in Galatian, at Galatia, he says, listen, I used to be the most zealous, exceeding. I'm not talking a little bit zealous, I'm talking exceeding. You're not going to get anybody that was more uh, zealous in the traditions of the Jews than I was. Yeah, that's what he's, he's saying, the traditions of my fathers, that's, that's the Jews. Over in his letter to the Philippians. Now, uh, Philippi, that church at Philippi was one of his most beloved churches. And uh, that whole letter to them was the letter of joy. But in it, he says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He's kind of given his pedigree, uh, his, uh, his heritage, his lineage. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Look at verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So if anybody could bear record to or speak of the zeal of the Jews, it's the Apostle Paul. Which goes to show us that you can have zeal in things and it be misguided. You can have a lot of zeal, you can believe in a lot of things, and you can be totally wrong about it. And you can fight tooth and nail for that thing that you have a lot of zeal for and be in the wrong. Now we see here that these folks are in the wrong. And Paul is trying to show them and prove to them through his own life. I used to be you. I had your zeal. 
I had exceeding zeal. I persecuted the church. I hated Christians. I was doing everything in my power to get rid of them. And he says, but I was wrong. I was wrong. And there's a lot of people in this life today that are zealous about many, many, many things. Most religions uh, require a bit of zealous uh, behavior. And almost all, well, not almost, but every false religion, every cult, uh, you must be zealous about what they believe. For example, Black Lives Matter. And you may say, well, now that's not a religion. Yes, it is. It most certainly is. Go to their website, and that's what they claim. They are a religion. And they're, they are really nothing more than a terrorist organization. They're hiding under the guise of, of trying to make sure that the lives of black people matter. However, if they really matter to them like they claim they do, they would focus their attention on the abortion clinics. More blacks die in abortion clinics than any other place. That's where they should focus their attention. They should focus their attention on these democratic-run cities where the blacks are being killed and murdered by each other every day. They should go to Chicago. They should go to Detroit, where the murder rate among blacks is the highest in all, the, all of the United States. And this is daily. This is weekly that this happens. But they don't place their focus there. Instead, they, they focus on being loud and obnoxious and violent, protesting, looting, rioting, all these things that they're doing. And so they take every opportunity to vandalize, loot, and destroy uh, property and to, to scream out their hate-filled, um, animalistic behavior. And that's all that is. And so, yes, they have a lot of zeal. They sure do. You see them on the news wearing their T-shirts, holding their signs, burning the stores down, you know, BLM. Uh, but they're misguided. That zealous behavior is, is wrong. What about this one? Everybody knows this, Jehovah Witnesses. Now, they claim to be a religion, and they're a religion-based cult is what they are. They're a cult. Do you know there's an estimated 7 million Jehovah Witnesses in the world? Now, this religious group is, is one of the most zealous of all, and they will defend their beliefs to death, to the death. They, they will. They are willing to die for their beliefs. They're willing to go, even if they, they need blood, they'll refuse a blood transfusion. They would as soon die than to receive a blood transfusion because that's against their so-called beliefs. Uh, they are a cult with very distorted views of the Bible. Let me give you seven base beliefs of the Jehovah Witnesses. First of all, they claim Jesus is not God. Now, we know as evangelical Christians, uh, Baptists, we know that Jesus is God. The Bible is clear on that. But rather, they claim he's Michael the Archangel. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, they claim the Holy Spirit is not a person, but is only an active force. They're Unitarians, and they deny the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. If one comes to your door, start talking to them about the Trinity. No, they won't have it because they don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that when you're dead, you're dead. Man has no eternal soul. And 
the man is just like an animal when he dies. It goes in the ground and rots, and that's it. You're you're an end. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was not raised bodily from the grave, but was recreated as a new spirit body. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that uh, Jesus actually returned invisibly in 1914, and that there is no visible future coming of the Lord Jesus planned. Now, it's all in the Bible. Now, these dates they give, they've made many of these, these guesses and uh, things like that that all have not come true. The same as the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They've done the same thing, make all these predictions. It's never happened. The Jehovah Witnesses do not believe in hell. Again, they believe that just like animals, we die and that is it. It's over. And they believe that there has only been 144,000 people that actually achieve a place in heaven. The rest of the faithful witnesses who have died will be recreated on earth. Be recreated. And uh, they'll live in the, a new kingdom called the new world. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses are a very religious group. They're very zealous. In fact, they're a lot more zealous than the Baptists. How many Baptists have knocked on your door? Very, very few. Jehovah Witnesses, they come all the time. They've not given up. Even during a pandemic, they, they're not giving up. They leave their Bible tracts. They send through the mail their, their propaganda. And so they're very zealous, but they're very wrong. They're misguided. And their knowledge is not of Christ. The same as Paul is claiming of the Jew. They have a zeal for God, but they don't not in knowledge. Paul said in verse 2, They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. There was no question of this. The Jew had plenty of zeal for God, but everything that they were doing was running contrary to the gospel because they had no knowledge of Christ. They refused to believe in him. Uh, verse 3 of our opening text, back in Romans chapter 10, Paul continues, he says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And here's their problem. You see, they, they want to be righteous. That's their desire. Their zeal for God is that they be righteous. But it's misguided because they're not concerned about God's righteousness. They're concerned about making themselves righteous. That's what he said. They're going about to establish their own righteousness. If I can keep all these laws, if I can abstain from all these meats, if I can put my body in subjection to all these things of Judaism and live in a strict way of life toward God, I will make myself righteous. That's their belief. Paul wants to live that way. Listen to what he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You see, what the Jews are doing, they're doing in ignorance, in unbelief in Christ. They don't believe in him. So everything they're doing, the self-righteous work they're trying to achieve, is in ignorance. Their number one goal for a Jew was to become righteous. Because if they could become righteous, 
And they could live here on this earth in God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's what their goal was, to live in God's kingdom here on earth. Well, Paul said they were going about to establish their own righteousness. Now, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, but the Jews' priority was try to live in the strictest way according to the law. It, the law was it. They believed by keeping this law and living this routine would make them righteous. And so they never even considered being made righteous by God, having God's righteousness imputed into them. And so, as Paul said, they were trying to establish their own. Well, they had obviously forgotten the words of their own prophets. Over in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, the Bible says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as the leaf, as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And so all they would have to simply do is go back to their prophets and see what they said about them. And they said, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, they're, they're useless. They're disgusting. They're dirty. And so it's only God's righteousness that we can be concerned with. And there's many people today that are still trying to achieve their own righteousness, do it in themselves, establish their own righteousness. The Roman Catholics, they teach that uh, works are necessary to achieve salvation. They believe Christ, but they also believe works, that you must maintain works. The Methodists, they teach you must also maintain good works to remain saved. The Jehovah Witnesses, again, that cult, they teach you must be obedient to the Watchtower Society in all of their their rules. Yeah. If a Jehovah Witnesses found out that he accepted the blood transfusion, you're, you're it. That's it. You're out. You're no longer one of us. <laughs> uh, they don't throw birthday parties or celebrate Christmas or anything else. They get caught doing that. You're out. <laughs> so... Works is a predominant teaching in most religions because it appeals to man's flesh. Man is able to make lists and follow lists and make a check. It'd be wonderful if that's all we had to do. If, if God said, Brother Byron, here's you a list of things that you must do, and as soon as you complete this list and check off every one of them, you're going to heaven. Oh, That'd be great. I'd just get that list and I'd, I'd check it off, and I'd go and run and do well, what i got to do next. Okay, I'm going to go do that. I'd go do it, come back, check that off. All right, Lord, I'm almost there. Hang on. And I would just do that over and over. And man would love to do that. And so most religions, they have all these works in their bylaws and in their doctrine that you follow these works, and that's what assures that you're righteous. That's never going to make you righteous. But we want to feel better about ourselves. The problem is it is completely unbiblical. Nothing in the Bible claims that we can earn any kind of righteousness or salvation of our own doing. In fact, it's the opposite. Over in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, the Bible says this, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So if we just take the Bible for what it says, it says it's not by our righteousness. 
We've never been saved that way. No one has ever been saved by establishing their own righteousness. It can only come through Jesus Christ. The Bible says this in Proverbs 14 and 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, we think that the way we want to do it is, is what we need. Uh, that's, it seems like that ought to be that way. Well, it seems to me that I should be able to give to this charity. It seems to me I should be able to read this many verses of Scripture. It seems to me that I can follow this law. It seems to me if I don't eat this kind of food, it seems to me. Well, see, all those things seem right to man, but the end thereof is what? The Bible says death. All that leads to death. What leads to life? Jesus Christ. The righteousness that we can obtain through, by him, through him. It's his righteousness that is imputed into us. And so Paul gives us the answer. Look at verse 4 and we'll be finished. Back in Romans 10 and 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Did you see that? Simple as that. To everyone that believeth. Not everyone that works. Not everyone that follows a pattern. Not everyone that makes a check off a checklist. Not everyone that abstains from that food. Not everyone that, that says this kind of prayer or that kind of prayer or goes through this religious activity. He says, no, it's simply believing. And it's Christ. Christ is the end of righteousness. So Christ is our answer. All we simply have to do is believe on him and be saved. And it's his righteousness that is imputed into us. And by the way, it's his works that he did that saved us. We don't do any works. He did all the work. Over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's as clear as it can be. And why people think that somehow some work you can do can either save you or keep you saved, how do they come up with that? That's contrary to the Bible teaching. If I have to continue doing works to keep my salvation, then certainly I was not able to be saved. Uh, if, if, the, if the blood of Jesus is not powerful enough to keep you saved, then it was not powerful enough to save you in the first place. So it's crazy the way people think today. And so it's not us keeping the law that makes us righteous. Jesus said this, Listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. What did Jesus say he came here to do? To fulfill. What did he do? He fulfilled the law. How do we know? The Bible tells us. Jesus, in his own words, tells us when he completed it. And he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. He had already went through the betrayal, through the trials, through the beatings, through the carrying of the cross, to be nailed through his hands and feet. He's hanging on that cross, suspended between heaven and earth. And listen to what the Bible says. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was not a vessel, or there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Verse 30 is the key. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. When Jesus said, It is finished, that was immediately when he fulfilled all things. The law was fulfilled. Righteousness fulfilled. Works fulfilled. Everything has been fulfilled at that point when Jesus said, It is finished. I'm thankful it was not up to me to achieve or establish my own righteousness and to save myself because I could not do it. But it was by Jesus' finished work on the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus said, it is finished, I know without a doubt that extended all the way up to me back in 1972 when I believed in Jesus Christ. And those words, it is finished, went right to me. If you're saved today, it went right to you. He was talking about you. I finished all the work. And then, what, what, what do we know from the Bible? What happened uh, later from that? He arose and he went up to sit on the right hand of the Father. What's he doing now? The Bible says he's making intercession for you and me. So for those that are saved, Jesus is there. He's our mediator. He's the only mediator between God and man, that man Christ Jesus and when we sin, when we pray, whatever it is, all, all communications between us and God go through Jesus Christ. Because why? He's the finisher of our faith. He completed it. No works, no law of righteousness, but only his righteousness. Now, it's my heart's desire that everyone be saved the same way that I was saved. And that was by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. That's all it took. The Lord came and he convicted my heart. The Holy Ghost spoke to me, revealed to me I was lost. I knew it without a doubt. I was lost. I had to be saved. I heard the word preached. The word of God was preached. The gospel was presented. I believe that. I believed that God sent Jesus here to die on the cross to save me from my sins. And I knew without believing in that and trusting him and receiving him as my Savior, I would die and go to hell. I honestly thought I was going to hell that very day. And I believed it with all my heart. And I prayed and I asked the Lord to save me. And he saved me. It's my heart's desire that everyone have that same salvation. Don't. Don't go somewhere where they're requiring you to do some kind of works. Follow some kind of routine or ritual to, to, to put the burden on you for salvation because it's a false religion. It's a false teaching. Oh, listen, all we got to do is simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But we as Christians and we as a church, we should all, our heart's desire should be that all the world be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning, Lord, thanking you so much for the message. Lord, thank you for convicting my heart personally 
Lord, over my desire to see this world be saved. God, so many times, Lord, we get selfish and, 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 and get caught up in all the things going on around us. And we tend to forget those that are out there that's lost. Lord, they're dying. They're going to hell. May you put within us, Lord, that heart's desire that Paul had. Lord, and that prayer on our lips when we kneel to pray, God, that we'll remember those that's out there that's lost. Help us with it, Father. Lord, if there's one right now listening to this message, Lord, and they've never been saved, God, may this be the day that they trust Jesus and believe in his finished work on the cross to save them. Help them, Father. May we be able to reach those that's out there lost. For these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, it's been a great day in God's house. We had a lot of good singing this morning. And I think I've sung for two hours. <laughs> a wonderful time. And this is coming up on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's on Thursday. And so I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving. And uh, you eat lots of turkey. I plan on it. We've got one in the refrigerator ready to go in the oven on, uh, well, I guess, Thursday or Wednesday night. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. And I am thankful for all the things God's blessed us with. Oh, we've got so much. Um, I, I Sometimes I feel so unworthy of all the things God's blessed us with. And we're not millionaires or anything, but we got plenty to eat. We got we got a nice house to live in. He's provided all of our needs. All of our kids are safe and happy and, and saved. And man, I tell you what, oh, I don't deserve all that. So I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful the Lord blesses. I pray that you feel the same way. If you don't, just uh, pray to him, ask him to help you. All right. Are our hearts and minds clear this morning? In fear of the Lord, we're separated.